Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is Corey Iron Knockreiner. I'm an element today. <laughs> Not an interesting one. I couldn't think of a. There's lots of crazy interesting ones, but iron came to mind. I don't know why. Iron. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll go. With we'll that. hear an interesting one a little later. Yeah, though. exactly. On today's episode, we'll cover a few recent news posts, including a massive breach for a social media company that may not actually be a breach. It's a couple, a couple of security-related updates from Microsoft, including one involving a heavy metal, and then an update <laughs> or a discussion about a recent cybersecurity article that our team was reading around and had quite a bit to talk on. Um, so, for time's sake. Let's go ahead and roll on in. All right, so let's start this week with some news last week about LinkedIn, uh, who, man, I feel like we've probably talked about LinkedIn breaches at least once a year on this podcast, but just last week, 700 million records popped up for sale by a user on a popular underground hacking forum called Raid Forums uh, that we frequent. This information appears to include PII like names, genders, email addresses, phone numbers, and then industry information, which includes inferred salaries, which I think is interesting. I guess LinkedIn builds enough information profile about people based off where they work, who they work for, they can guess how much they make. I, 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 pre I, pre I presume that's more about titles and location. I think as you probably even know, Mark, and just because we hire too, is that uh, titles tend to, HR people have ranges of salary averages for a title in various locations because that changes. Because there is no, there's no place I put my salary or you, that I think you put your salary in LinkedIn. Even if they ask for it, it's something I probably would never do. So I'm just assuming it's probably not your real salary. It's inferred by the same HR and salary averages mostly based on title and yep. location i'm actually like but who knows they could have more magic sauce than after that. after hearing about this i'm really curious and would like to get a copy of that database but i don't exactly want to pay a cyber yeah. criminal for 700 million see records. if you're paid less or more than they say exactly although i don't know if i want to see that in your next uh uh review see? performance Corey, review. the dark Corey, web agrees with me the linkedin breach says you don't pay me enough <laughs> hopefully it will say the op opposite and you'll realize oh wow you pay me more than linkedin <laughs> anyways uh, LinkedIn has since put out a statement saying that the data is an aggregation of data from a number of websites and the company, uh, as well as publicly viewable member profile data. And it is not technically a breach because no private information was stolen. Uh, there's no passwords or password hashes, so the data can't be used directly in authentication attacks. But information like this is basically all you need to carry out a phishing attack against someone. And spear phishing is all the rage these days. I'm a... Uh, yeah. It, it, another way to put it is they're saying it's it's a combination of historical breaches and maybe scraping. Mm -hmm. Scraping just being, uh, I somewhat believe this, Mark. I mean, I'm, you're probably going to show your opinion too, but unlike, like LinkedIn is almost a social network not intended to be private. Like uh, we have a lot of recommendations for folks using Facebook. There's a lot of private information you don't want to share publicly, but considering LinkedIn is about finding jobs, or at least that's how it started. I, I, I think most people's profile is pretty public. You know, I think there are privacy settings, but if uh, you're looking for a job, what's the point of using them? 
You know, the whole point is to make your profile kind of public on LinkedIn. So I could see scraping getting some of the data we're talking about if you're willing to put it up on LinkedIn. Yeah. And funny enough, like scraping isn't actually illegal. Uh, at least like there was a federal court in, court oh, not in uh, California last month that basically upheld it and that anything that is publicly available through a public API is free for taking basically. Which, yeah, I mean, it's that doesn't mean it's not against the site's terms of service and they can ban you from the site, um, but it's not. And by the way, LinkedIn says they do what they can to avoid yeah. it. So they, they it implies they are looking for automated spiders and robots that do scrape sites. But like you say, I, I mean, it, I would even argue it shouldn't be legal because if you're if the site is designed to show this publicly and you as a user or letting yourself be public, you know what I mean? You're not putting any privacy settings on the profile and what you're sharing with the site. Uh, of course, someone can scrape it and it's not, a, you know, all scraping is is automating going to a lot of pages and grabbing the data. But the data is public there if you went to all those pages manually, right? Now, here's a question that I want to propose though, like ignoring the legality of it. Like, should organizations be more responsible for preventing scraping of PII like this? Like, yes, we gave it up freely, knowing that it's going to be displayed publicly and accessible publicly. But at the same time, I don't think any of us wants our data to be easily accessible by everyone in a giant database for sale on the dark web. Is that our fault? Is that something that organizations should, like LinkedIn or other people that have PI should prefer? I would love to hear your opinion first, Mark, because I, it's funny. I go like, I, my my gut answer is yes. I would like them to defend against scraping, but honestly, I I think we don't take enough fault in in some of the stuff happening on social networks like LinkedIn, in or social or Facebook even. By the way, that doesn't make Facebook and LinkedIn good guys, and doesn't mean they're not using our data beyond even what we shared with them. But we, any data that's on LinkedIn, you had to put up there. If you didn't adjust privacy settings to limit who can see that data on the application, you're kind of implicitly saying, I'm putting it there specifically because I want people to know my name, gender, and phone number and address, and my resume because I want them to find me to be hired. Uh, so, and I, I think you can argue, is any of the PII they're talking about not already public? <laughs> you know, That's the other one. Like they're, they're, my name, email, phone number, it's everywhere on the internet. Yes. And it's public by our own government in many cases for, for housing, for voting records, for uh, should we be, should we realize the value of that data in phishing and stuff? Yes. But, you know, I, I think we need to take some personal responsibility as a society for putting the data out there in the first place. Yep. All that said, like, no one wants automated scraping. And frankly, even if I were LinkedIn, even not thinking altruistically, even if LinkedIn is just a profit-motivated company, why would they want anyone to get the data that's really their LinkedIn's product? Remember, if you're getting something for free, which yes, there are paid LinkedIn subscriptions too, but most people on there are there for free, you're the product. <laughs> so if I were them, even if it wasn't to keep my customers safe, you'd think they'd want to keep that data them themselves because that's part of their value. So I, I would want them to defend against scraping, but I think we don't question our own, our own act in, in letting this private data out or letting this potentially personal data out there and making it public. <laughs> Half the time, we did it on purpose. If you have a 
profile on LinkedIn. I, I think you did that. I'm, I'm assuming, or at least I'll assume for myself. I did that at one time because I know I would want a job, look for a job one day, and I want people to be able to find out the information related to getting a job about me. Yep. And I think that's fair. Like it basically boils down to we should know better if we don't want that information out there than putting that information out there. I'd say there are some like outside of social media, there are some sites where I feel like they collect too much information than is warranted. Like, I yes. don't know why a magazine subscri subscription like or like an online publication needs my phone number, for example. doesn't make sense. Or, or even even your gender, yeah. right? The magazine definitely doesn't need to know your gender. So I'm with you 100%. We should never give, like, it, it's okay for companies to get enough data from us to do whatever business or service they're doing. But we should be suspicious when they ask for more and not give them anything more than they need for our purpose. The other half of that, though, is I think we should maybe be a shame on you for any companies. So why do why do we care about these breaches? Because all that information is, can be used for identity theft and phishing. The phishing part is harder because it's just knowing enough about you to trick you. But the identity theft is anyone that is using public information, like e email should be considered public information at this point. I mean, I know GDPR considers it private, but I, in the US, there, it's, it's practically public. There's no, 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 it's out there whether we want it to be private or not. So any company that uses this level of data to validate who you are in any way, for instance, a social security number. It was never designed to really be a digital validation of who you are. And yet there's so many companies that use social security that way. And same with, while they may not use email address and phone al numbers alone, but you know, if I go to the pharmacy and they're trying to figure out who I am, besides my birth date, they ask me for my address. Why the freak are people using that as security? My, my birthday and my address are things that you could probably pretty easily figure out. Address simply based on buying homes or voting. Uh, so I, I think it's shame on us when we share data that the company doesn't need, but also shame on the companies that use this. This should not be considered strongly authenticating data. So if you're using this data in a way that makes identity theft easier because, you know, so I think you get what yep. I'm, I'm, I'm pointing to. And not only should we not give up too much data, but we shouldn't consider any of these data types as something that authenticates who we are, because at this point, anyone can get them. And the good news is unlike past LinkedIn breaches, this one didn't include any more sensitive authentication data like passwords, so. Yeah. Hashes would be a different yes. thing, right? You know, hashes is, are something you don't, or passwords directly are something you don't get in scraping. That would have been a very big breach. And that is a data that, a piece of data that is entirely the responsibility of LinkedIn to protect for you. So I, I if, if it were passwords leaking, I would blame LinkedIn more than, than the user. For the other data, I think we, we kind of asked for it by sharing it. <laughs> so a verdict being not that big of a deal then? Probably more of a, a news story pouncing on the back of re, uh, past LinkedIn breaches than something that's really scary. I think when we saw this, we didn't think, it, you know, it seemed like at, at first we're like, oh, this could be a big breach, but we quickly realized it's just aggregate. Yep. The one weird thing with the underground now that the media is following the underground in the same way we are, you know, and all security researchers are, is I think they sometimes don't get the difference between uh, what are they called? Uh, the collections. They, 
you know, there are actual database breaches that are new breaches, but there's these lists that are just combined lists of past breaches. And those get resold over and over because maybe if you don't have one of the breaches or you didn't collect them all, it, it, having this combined password list, often already with cracked passwords rather than the hashes, is, is, is good. But it's usually old data, old breaches. And right away, this story kind of felt like, I think all of us thought this is probably not really a new breach. And it, it, you know, so to some extent, I think less a big deal. It's not that it's not a big deal that the data is out there, but it's not news. It was out there before. I think that's a, for the most part with maybe a few new records. Fair conclusion. Now, pivoting to some actual new recent developments. Uh, right after we finished recording our last podcast, Microsoft's Security Response Center uh, published an update on the latest activity that they detected from Nobelium, which is the name given to the state-sponsored threat actors responsible for the solar winds breach. I normally give you crap on per pronunciations, but I actually think Nobelium is spot on. So good job on that weird word. Thank you. Uh, I did actually pay attention in chemistry class uh, in college. <laughs> it was one of the few ones that I actually did decent in. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Uh, and I'd actually, you know, we, we make fun of names all the time, but Naming them after like elements, like Nobelium in the case of Microsoft is cool. Better than yeah, Fancy no, yeah, Bear okay. and Cozy Bear and Fuzzy Bear. and Yeah. And that's more, it seems more similar to like product code names or secret code. Like people decide to do Harry Potter characters or locations. So yeah, if you pick something like elements, it doesn't really have a strong tie to the particular actor. It's just a tag <laughs> I, that, that I won't make fun of as much as... Fancy bear. The silly ones. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> uh, so the disclosure listed password spraying and brute force attacks as the most recent methods that the threat actors are using to compromise organizations. And I mean, it seems like these are just super, it's not like super sophisticated, you know, break into solar winds a month or a year before and put in this super sophisticated backdoor. It's literally just password spraying and brute force attacks because crap like that works, unfortunately. Uh, they said the majority of the attacks were targeting specific customers with the majority of them, 57% being IT companies, 20% government, and then smaller percentages for non-government organizations and think tanks and financial services. I mean, this is another one where it kind of makes sense going after IT. Basically, you get the big fish and then hit all their customers. Very much. Yeah, and by the way, IT companies could even be software vendor companies like Solarium and all the software vendors that got hit after. I mean, if you hit a big IT product company, you probably get customers for all that IT product too. Yeah. By the way, stepping back to your uh, simple techniques, I, I think there's a pretty common, you know, cybersecurity nerd like us saying that hackers don't break in, they log in. <laughs> so... Yeah, password spraying and brute forcing is low sophistication and not as interesting and cool to us from a technical perspective. But why pull out the big guns when the freaking Nerf gun can knock down the, the victim? I mean, uh, while we just kind of joked about the LinkedIn password breached, probably not to, uh, leaking too much sensitive data, all the password breaches before that, you know, led to this type of thing. And we already know password reuse is pretty decent still despite us all telling people not to do it. So yeah, not sophisticated, but hey, it doesn't take much apparently. And 
and all like we joke at it, but like this, these password spraying and brute force attacks, this is literally just like step one of several hundred steps when it comes to a bigger breach. Like the solar winds one probably started with password spraying, brute force, or some yeah. basic phishing attack to get credentials. And then from there, yeah. and it, but a, but you may get a tiny little target. Yeah. I mean, the one thing we're we're minimizing that the article I don't remember the exact the article of this this brute forcing a tiny fraction succeeded. Like they saw it across a lot of customers, but the the blog post mentioned only a couple. Only was it three? Yep. I, yeah, only three of them actually worked. But that's the thing. I mean, if if you're when it's the easy method, if you can find three, that's good enough to start and maybe the three is even a low privileged computer in a a more segmented part of the network but to your point that's only the start now you have a slightly privileged bastion host in your target then you get to lateral movement there you might need a little more sophisticated techniques but usually that little elevated place of privilege is usually the start to a a slow breakdown in the entire chain yeah and like as we've talked about previously like even getting a foothold from there, it's pretty easy to elevate privileges on a like a Microsoft network, for example, through many different means. Yeah, I forget the it, it was a couple black hats ago, but even getting like a guest privilege on an internal Windows machine, there's a group of pen testers that was able to get domain credentials every time. It might have been a number of hops, but there's literally a tool they had where they played network sniffing to, to capture hashes and then played past the hash tricks. And it might have taken a few hops of privilege to get to where they needed to, where they could finally find a domain credential. But in every single you know, uh, action they took or operation they did, they they eventually got to domain admin. So it doesn't take much, it, you know, once you get a little bit of privilege. And even though it was only three successful hits for this one, I'm going to do some pretty complex math here, but three is more than zero, which means for such a low effort attack, it is probably worthwhile for them to continue this same yeah. style of method. That's why people still do basic phishing and spam, right? Uh, there's hundreds of millions of failed spam emails. It's probably only 0.01% where people click on them. But when you're talking hundreds of millions of people receiving them, 0.01% is enough of a return. Exactly. Uh, also interesting in their disclosure, though, uh, Microsoft noted that during their investigation, they found some information stealing malware on a machine belonging to one of their customer support agents uh, who had access to some basic account information for a small number of customers as well. Um, so it's interesting where they're investigating these state-sponsored actors and now they're finding malware on their tech support machines. To, to me, I'd seen the story about the tech support machine before I read their blog post talking about this too. And to me, it seems like a pretty tricky way to obfuscate what I think might be a bigger deal than they're saying. I mean, ultimately they say that they don't think, they, they say their support machines are segmented. They have a zero trust model inside. So even though they got access to this support rep's machine, uh, he or she had very little privilege beyond that. So they, they downplay it quite a bit, but it seems funny to me because it means technically Microsoft suffered a breach. A computer in their network had malware. They're still investigating. There could be lateral movements. Uh, hopefully their zero trust works. But it seemed like a funny aside to when they're pretending to talk about other things and, oh yeah, we had a breach too. Yep. <laughs> they didn't put it that way though. Exactly. It, it doesn't exactly <laughs> flow with the uh, the mood of the rest of the post as well. 
but it, it makes sense to go after support reps like now that you think about it because they do oh, tend to sure. have quite a bit of access even if they're not you know like that that that's the surprising thing i mean they say this if i i, I don't recall the exact i guess i could bring up the dot the, the blog said post, zero trust tend with to, uh, limited limited yeah. privilege access or whatever yeah, they, they basically say that the support reps are limited, but in my experience, we sometimes, our support reps anyways, tend to have to run more types of files to test things customers would. They tend to have to have a little extra network access because they have to download unusual things that customers might be using to test them against the product. You know what I mean? I feel like our support reps tend to have a little more access than the average other WatchGuard employee simply because of their job. So it seemed funny that they seemed to be saying their support reps didn't. Maybe it's like a first level script, but you know, our support's a little more technical and deep for a network product than like a first level script based OS person might be. I don't know. Yeah, I honestly have no idea what Microsoft's levels of support look like. I mean, it could very well yeah. be that their lowest tiers literally answer the phone, put down basic information and move on. Yeah, and I also know that they outsource a lot of stuff before they they hire, so they have some support companies that, so maybe it was, but anyways, I like you, I kind of thought support reps might have a little more privilege in general. Yeah, but either way, like the the threat actors responsible for SolarWinds are still very active going after tech companies like Microsoft in this case. And even just the basics are still things you have to defend against because Man. I would even say the basics are probably the best thing to defend That's against. True. I mean, maybe we'll get that in the articles, but there's lots of really fancy security controls that do fancy novel stuff that only catches really specific, sophisticated things. Meanwhile, so many companies seem to be falling short on just getting the basics right. Like authentication. So I, I yes. <laughs> Yeah, keeping your password secure and maybe adding MFA to things so a brute force attack wouldn't work regardless of passwords being out there or not. That sounds like a good security strategy or at least some uh, stepping stones to start with. Um, yep. So moving on to some more news out of Microsoft land or at least cur courtesy of their research team. Uh, last Wednesday, the Microsoft 365 Defender research team uh, published an analysis of three vulnerabilities they found in a popular Netgear router uh, the model was DGN 2200v1, uh, which they found while developing fingerprints for their network discovery tool. Basically, they had it in a lab or some customer's environment. They were trying to develop fingerprints for identifying this router. And in the process, they found some anomalous network traffic going to the management interface, uh, which they suspected was someone exploiting a flaw in the interface, which caused them to take a closer look, basically. Um, I want to applaud them on that level of curiosity of noticing something funky and, you know, instead of investigating that connection, just going straight in and reversing the firmware entirely to figure out if there's a flaw in it. Um, so in their post, um, they go through the process of how they unpack the firmware image they got from Netgear and then use Binwalk to extract the underlying file system. And then the areas that they were looking into with the management interface, they were basically focusing on ways to potentially get around administrative uh, requirements to access certain pages. And all in all, they found three authentication bypass vulnerabilities on the router that could allow a remote attacker to gain full access to any administrative page and thus the device itself by uh, issuing a malicious firmware upgrade if they wanted to. Uh, the first flaw 
was from how the pay the router's web server validated access to restricted pages. So with many of these web apps running on um, networking equipment, like the router in this case, uh, you obviously want to restrict certain resources, like administrative portals where you configure network interfaces or firmware updates. But at the same time, you probably don't need to put restrictions on like a JPEG image that, of the logo that shows up when you first pull up the interface or CSS styling files. Um, the problem though was with how they validated resources and resource requests to this web server to see if they should require authentication or not. So some JavaScript files, some CSS pages were allowed by default, probably the ones associated with publicly unauthenticated uh, accessible pages. And then, but in order to check whether a page should be allowed, they used the substring search function, so strstr, to check the entirety of the URL to look for things like .jpg or .js or .gif. And the Microsoft research team found that you could abuse this by creating a GET request to a restricted resource. So like, let's say wan-config.html, and then using GET request path variables, so a question mark and then a variable name, uh, where now that URL includes .gif in it or .jpg in it, the variable is just ignored by the web server once it reaches that yeah, resource. Yeah, it's the, the actual HTML page isn't doing anything with that that particular parameter, right? Yep. It's, but it's still there when you type it. But it's still there. And so because it was a part of the URL, it would validate. So the server would serve up that resource. Again, it would then ignore that parameter because it doesn't know what to do with a variable called pick.gif, for example. Um, and the visitor could then do whatever they wanted on that page. Seems like a pretty basic web app flaw in this case, where they tried to do validation, yeah. but unfortunately not in a security good enough way. Secure way. Mm -hmm. Um, authentication itself had its own issues. So to access restricted resources, the web server uses HTTP basic authentication to prompt for a username and password, which gets sent to the server. Uh, you've probably seen this with any consumer router where when you go to log in, it pops up your web browser, pops up that little username and password page, a little window thing, put it in, it encodes it and then sends it off to the server for authentication. Uh, so the server uses the string compare method, so strcmp, to compare the provided username with the actual admin username and the provided password with the actual password. Which, pausing here for a second, they're not comparing the password hash. They actually have the administrative password stored in plain text on the uh, router itself. And they're comparing directly to that instead of hashing. So that's no-no number one. Um, but uh, by the string compare method works by comparing character by character until it reaches a null terminator, so the end of the string, or if a mismatch happens, which enables a side channel attack uh, where an attacker can basically measure the time it takes to get a failure. So you can think of this by having a, a random string and then set the first character to it to each possible letter and then fire all those attempts off. And the one that has the correct possible first letter will take slightly longer to process because this comparison will fail on the second character then instead of the first one. And so by doing that and rotating through, you can go through every single possible character combination from first character, second, third, and just whatever one takes longest. It's the one that's correct. And you can ultimately squeeze out the entire- and Do it one letter at a time. Yep, the entire username and entire- And much, it, it, it seems like brute force because you're trying one character at a time, but it's actually exponentially faster. 
because you're 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 getting you know a real brute force attack if there's an eight character password i don't know if the first character match is right or not so even if you know even if i tried uh, dog cat cat was the password uh i i still may have to try a lot of other c words because i didn't know c was right but in this case you know you you're much quickly you're in a much quicker fashion even if there's characters be, beyond alphanumeric figuring out the first character and then you already know that's right so it feels like brute force because you are going through many characters but it's a exponentially shorter time period brute force. I think this one's pretty cool and sophisticated. Yeah. Anytime you're using timing of a process to get a little information, although this is a, a little easier to understand because it's, of course, getting it wrong would always take the same time. Getting it right might be a little bit different. Uh, it's still a pretty neat idea. Yeah, basically, like instead of a true brute force attack where any given series of characters could be the correct one, like you don't know, it could be just no matter which try, it yeah. all has the same chance. You're basically reducing. You, you could try a word where the first four characters of your try were right, but the last four wouldn't weren't right. But you would never yep. know that the first four would right were right. In this case, you would know every character one at yeah. a time. And while you yeah. don't necessarily know the length, you are still making it so you have fewer characters you have to try for the rest of it each time you go and get the correct one noted down. Um, yeah. Now, obviously, not every single login form has this vulnerability so there are more secure ways of doing it uh they proposed using something like a, a zor based comparison um with the username where basically the function continues even if it fails on one of the single byte characters even just like i mean you could still potentially brute force the username if you kept this method for that but using a hash of the password would also help at least against brute forcing the password oh, in this sure. case because a yeah. hash you can't exactly check character by character for a hash if it's doing the the calculation on the server itself. Um, so that was another interesting one. Uh, the final authentication issue, though, abuses that first weakness, the one where you can just append a .gif file as a variable name to access the, uh, the page that holds the configuration backup for the NVRAM on the box. So basically where the username and password are stored in the router's file system. Um, and the good news is that configuration file that you can just grab there with that first authentication bypass is encrypted. Uh, so it should be potentially really difficult to get those usernames and passwords out of it. Uh, the bad news is though, that that file is encrypted with the same key, uh, the same key NTGRBAK on every single router. So basically if it was exposed to the internet, someone could just pull up that file, decrypt it. Now they've got your username and password. Yeah. Never try to avoid any hard coded passwords. And that goes to, that's to vendors. The user doesn't have control of this, I presume. Yeah. In this case, it was a hard-coded encryption key, which uh, they had to reverse it out of the, the firmware. But again, the firmware is available for free publicly on Netgear's website. It's not encrypted or anything. It's not really obfuscated. Anyone could have gone in and grabbed that. Uh, encryption key, password, same, same, same yeah. thing. Uh, but uh, I, I get what you're saying. It's a but. What you could have done, by the way, is if you have some sort of TPM or unique, you you could make that that unique for each network gear device. If you were Netgear, you'd just have to do more work. Yeah. you know, you're you'd have to have some sort of seed information that's unique on each device that allows you to make an encrypted key. So at least it's different for everyone. Exactly. Uh, 
Long story short, though, Netgear did release firmware updates to resolve these security issues and weaknesses. Um, but if you own a Netgear router, like I go so far as to say you shouldn't expose a, a router, whether it be consumer or enterprise one directly to the internet, especially if it's only protected by basic yeah. HTTP auth. That's what I, that's the one thing I took from some of your notes. This wasn't even HTTPS for their web interface, right? I, I do they have an option? So it was at least HTTPS? encrypted. It's just that it's using basic authentication, basic yeah. auth, which okay, does good. not have any built-in rate limiting, obviously doesn't support multi-factor yeah. authentication in this case. Basically, if you have it exposed to the internet, yes, they got crafty yeah. with using this uh, side channel to reduce the brute force that they'd have to go through. But even without that, if you have exposed the internet, someone could just hammer away at it all day and brute yeah. force your credentials off of it. And honestly, even if you, even if it were more secure and it had throttling and things like that, it's a management interface, yeah. right? To an important device, you probably shouldn't expose it anyways. There's lots of more secure ways you guys all know for remote access. Remote access is okay. We all need to sometimes remotely access our servers and devices, but. There's VPN, there's zero trust network access, there, there's all kind. there's access control lists that at least limit IPs. Uh, lots of things you can do to at least do the remote access in a more secure way. Absolutely. Uh, so to round out this week, um, last week our team was passing around this article written by The Economist titled Ransomware Highlights the and Challenges, wait, Ransomware Highlights the Challenges and Subtleties of Cybersecurity. So the article covered a variety of issues regarding the ongoing ransomware epidemic uh, that's claimed many organizations, big and small, massive uh, food processing and uh, infrastructure organizations down to small, medium businesses getting hit with ransomware like every single day. And while I'd say ransomware was mentioned, it was probably even more concerned with general state-sponsored yeah. cyber attacks how that might be related to ransomware, but just how state-sponsored attacks overall are affecting society and the world. Yeah, they went over concerns with like nation states targeting private organizations and cyber criminals being given leeway within their country uh, to go after foreign organizations. We've talked about how basically if you're a hacker in Russia, as long as you don't touch Russia, you can hack whoever you want. Honestly, things we've I, I think they probably listened to the 443 and they yeah. just uh, did, did article after listening to all our conversations. <laughs> Anyways, uh, they actually they made a few points, though, that I thought were worthy of discussion on the podcast. Um, so in one section, they interviewed a professor at America's National Defense University called Gary Brown. And he said, states are more tolerant of kinetic effects caused by online operations than those which result from armed provocations. So for example, uh, last year, an alleged Iranian cyber attack sought to increase the chlorine levels in Israeli drinking water, which resulted in a pretty mild response from uh, Israel, where they just had a cyber attack against an Iranian port. But had Iranian commandos attacked Israel's water plants directly, though, it would have been considered an act of war. So basically the same end result but because one arrived over cyber we treat it a lot differently than a physical attack and i get it there's like you know people invading your country is massively different than a, a hack but the end result is still the same i actually don't i i i think there's a different reason that the article didn't mention that maybe for this and i don't think that nation states will be that tolerant for long I think historically, one of the reasons we've been forced to be more tolerant is attribution 
is much more difficult and deniable in a cyber attack. Uh, you know, I think you've all he heard like five, ten years, probably even five years ago, a lot of experts were talking about how attributing a cyber attack to a particular actor is hard, let alone a particular nation state knowing the government did it. You know, there's all kinds of tricks like VPNs and proxies and blah, blah, blah. Now, attribution is also not impossible. Uh, VPNs and proxies can be tracked down via ISPs and other things. And even without that, the way we attribute attacks nowadays is more about tools, tactics, and procedures. But the, the thing is, tools, tactics, and, you know, a physical attack, you see a person with a uniform, you know what I mean? Uh, even in black ops, you at least see things like race and skin color, you know what I, so you can, it's easier to make assumptions about where those, what nation state or what state that person's from. Uh, but with cyber attacks, attribution is a little harder. I think in the past five years, we've gotten much better at it. And thus our intelligence agencies, you know, before they said, we think with 70% accuracy, this is Russia. Now they're probably saying we think that with 95% confidence or whatever. Yeah. But I do think one of the things in the past, why states were forced to be tolerant of these attacks is because they couldn't unequivocally prove it was the other country in all cases. Uh, but as we get better with that attribution and as it becomes more obvious, I think that will change because I honestly, what you said is what, what matters to me. Ultimately, these attacks will have the same, can have the same result, maybe even sometimes worse. So I think this might be a temporary effect. And I feel like we're seeing that recently with some of Biden and other, you know, our reaction to col Colonial Pipeline was quite different than our reaction to Sony Pictures. Although we apparently did but, shut down North Korea's internet for a couple days after that, allegedly. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I do think in the past it's definitely been a weird dichotomy where it, people have been more tolerant. But I wonder if it has more to do with the surety of attribution. It's just much easier if you see uh, a Korean plane drop a bomb on, I don't know, Singapore, you know. I guess there's false flag attacks in the past too, where you paint different flags, but that's much harder. You have to get a Korean plane. So I, I, I think part might be just making sure we have the attribution right on. And you're right. The, I do think that it feels like we're oh, getting sorry. a lot better at that. Like it used to, if you just look yeah. at like the, the statements from US intelligence and law enforcement agencies like five years ago versus now, it feels like the day after a big security incident, they'll come out and be like, yeah, it was Russia. We know it is. Whereas in the past, it'd be like a couple weeks later, well, we think it looks kind of like this one. It looks like Lazarus's behavior, but we can't blah, blah, blah. Like they're a lot more confident in their attribution as well too now. Yes, because they, they're paying more attention. They, they've developed tools, tactics, and procedures in, in groups for a long period of time, and they're getting more confident with that. That said, I believe it's still going to be hard because, I, I mean, if you think about it, all the cyber warfare and espionage going on, it, it's had a non-cyber version for, for decades or frankly for centuries, but there's kind of an asymmetry that technology and networking adds to things. So for instance, 
you know, there was election, there was voter manipulation or at least a propaganda long before the internet. You know, uh, if you read stories, ideas of CIAs infiltrating companies as, as quiet actors and doing propaganda old school way with paper or talking to people or, you know, double agents in countries that steal a lot of data but that data is paper, and even after they steal the data, it takes them years to get that physical stuff out of country to the other country they're working for. Uh, nowadays, those type of attacks ha happen in seconds, and you get truckloads of data in a download. Uh, and the reason I bring that up is even though we're getting better at attributing, I also think black flag attacks are going to be harder. So the example I gave is in a physical attack, you see a type of plane in the air with a flag on it and you assume that's who you're attacking. I'm sure there's been past warfares where we've captured an enemy plane or, or made one look like we were, you know, we've done false flag attacks in the past and physical attacks too. But that takes physical work, right? You have to get the right plane and paint a, a flag. In the digital world, now that we're getting with better with attribution, I think false flags are much easier to do. Like while we're getting better at identifying Russia, China, Iran, whoever's techniques, they're also getting to know each other's techniques too. So I don't think it, I think it's much easier for Russia to launch an attack pretending to be like, Iran, Iran, by using certain tactics, grabbing some of the tools they use if they can get them, or at least mimicking some of the strings and things in them. So what I'm saying is while we're getting better at attribution, I think there's a lot of asymmetry computing offers where even being able to pretend to be someone else is much easier in a digital world than it is a physical world. So even as we get better at attribution, I think the types of tricks and false flag situations that are going to happen are going to start to increase this in effect making attribution hard again yeah i think you're spot on with that what a what a pretty picture we're painting for the future of cybersecurity. Well, i, I, I hate it <laughs> but my worry with this versus normal warfare is the asymmetry that digital technology offers at least in physical warfare there's numbers and people but it, it only takes technology gives everyone asymmetric power Hopefully everyone has the same knowledge and we use that asymmetry in an equal way that makes it symmetric again, but uh, it's the asymmetric nature of these digital attacks that is kind of scary to me. Yeah. Uh, so the other thing I wanted to talk about from the article was they highlight a report released by Debate Security, which is a group of cybersecurity experts, uh, where the report had a subtitle, quote, is cybersecurity the new market for lemons, uh, where basically they're drawing parallels to the used car industry, where as a buyer, like, I don't know crap about cars. I don't know how to tell if a particular used car is fine or if it's got some issue under the hood. Like, I'm sure there are people out there. Obviously, I've got a lot of friends that know a lot about cars and could figure that out. But me going to a used car place is stressful and traumatizing because I don't know what I'm getting. Um, <laughs> where in cybersecurity, they're drawing a parallel, basically saying, um, you see all these security services, they're all high priced. Like, how do you know if one's going to be good or bad? And by... Uh, having this one side or, or more to the point they, they they may not be all high priced but if if all the security services are saying the same thing you know yeah we use machine learning to detect malware uh, but one of them is much lower priced than the other ones 
you know, people tend to go to the lower price models, but I think the idea is there's a devil in the details and maybe one is better than the other, but you're not, the buyer's not sophisticated enough to know the technical yeah, difference. Like with the... So, so the key thing is the used car sales is lots of people are buying them because they're inexpensive, they're cheaper. But the result is they might be getting worse materials than the new car that has a lot of features that they didn't realize were better. Exactly. And by virtue of this, like because people can't uh, reliably identify cars in that case, like they're unwillingly or unknowingly paying higher prices and then sellers of good cars are driven out of the market because they can't compete with those cheaper, potentially cheaper cars because they're worse cars. And so their concerns are that this is happening in cybersecurity. And they pointed to some stats like the average number of breaches increasing year after year, despite more money still flowing into cyber defense. So pretty loaded question here for you, Corey, but do you think the authors are right in this particular case for that report? I, I, I'm very mixed on this subject because there's kernels of truth that I think are worth discussing, but but no. You can't just because people are spending more on security doesn't mean that security is crappy because attacks are up. There's a lot of reasons why, which I'll get into. But but the first, this whole idea of you going to buy a used car, but not really understanding, you know, you understand the basics of a car and what you want it to do. But I don't really understand how a 12-cylinder truck is so much better than a six cylinder one or whatever. By the way, I don't even know if they make so I, I wanted to say eight cylinder. Is there a twelve cylinder truck out there? That shows you used car salesmen that they could get me to buy something. Anyways, I there's truth to that because when it gets down to it, there is a lot of technical devils in the detail. In our podcast, we talk about machine learning, behavioral-based malware detection, signature-based, but even within each of those types, there's nuance and difference and tech. We don't get into it all the time because one, we're a podcast and two, would bore you to death with technical details, but not all security is created equal. You could have 12 different IPS systems and some may be more effective than others at certain things, whether it's evasions, better signatures. So I, I think there's definitely truth to, it's hard to know if the product you're buying, one is better than the other. I will say, I think this whole idea of driving high-priced ones out of the market is stupid. And the presumption being high-priced ones are better, they're just not getting a chance because they're too high-priced is stupid. Uh, we obviously are biased as working, you know, this is a watch guard podcast, so I don't want to really hammer competitors, but we've seen breaches of security companies in the past year, <laughs> big name security companies, companies that were the darlings of the industry that were the highest price things, SolarWinds, FireEye, Palo Alto. These are big, you know, these are the ones the analysts are telling us are the best security things to get. They got breached. <laughs> That's what you spent more money on than other stuff, and they got breached. So this whole idea of high, the, the higher quality ones that were pricey are the ones that aren't getting used because people aren't buying them. One, I, I dispute that higher price means more effective. That is not at all the case. I mean, if you want to look at efficacy tests, there are low-cost models that do as good as the high-cost models. For instance, if you look at the NSS Labs Next Generation Firewall Test, the last one that was out there. So I, I think there's way too much assumption in security spending versus is the higher price stuff better somehow than the, the lower price stuff. But I do think that 
that there is truth to, it's hard for the consumer to, to know which technology is really better because it really is a complex type of you know, situation. But two, the much bigger problem that I think we're not facing is I think we care way too much about throwing money at technology and we're not putting enough onus on ourselves and our use of the technology. Any company that says you buy this thing and put it in and your problems are solved is lying to you. Don't do that. And two, even if that were a great piece of technology, it still has configuration and you as the user have choice of policies. Uh, Gartner and other analysts have a, had a stat before that says that 99% of firewall compromises are due to misconfiguration, not a lack of security control in the firewall. I see a lot of companies that have spent huge amounts on security and have big name products, but they've opened up RDP publicly through their firewall, which turns the firewall capabilities off, doesn't use its VPN capability, doesn't use its multi-factor authentication. So I, I think I think they read too much in the technology. I think one, we expect that technology is the solution to this and we forget that this is a people policy problem. Even if you have the right technology, you're not gonna be secure without people in policy too and without configuring these devices right. And two, I think half the time people aren't doing the work to actually put these security controls in the configuration they need. Let, let's face it, good security is a risk management equation between convenience and security. And sometimes it's harder to do the secure right way, harder for, for the security person or harder even for some employees. So I, I, I just, I, I, I think they're right to point a finger at some of the limitations of technology. And certainly if they have concrete examples of where technologies are really failing, but I think they're forgetting a huge human element of the problem. And frankly, I see most of the time it's people haven't implemented the best practices, even if they have the products to do yeah, so. I think you're absolutely right. Like I, I guess both of us have done our time in the trenches of tech support for security companies and like the number of incidents like or like networks where I've seen someone, they go out and buy a, a firewall, a UTM appliance or something, which it's not exactly free. It's not necessarily expensive, but it costs money. They plug it in, but then they don't go through and turn on any security services that they've signed up for. It's just too dang high. Like it's it seems to be an issue across the industry. And I get it that like, you know, it not everyone's a security expert. Uh, and if the default configuration is the default configuration, in some cases, you might not know to do that. So, yeah, that's why I think like and, 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 and even by the way, that's a good thing, because maybe you assume the defaults are good enough. But the other thing is, like, let, let's face it, if I'm a, I, I don't know, a bicycle company, security is not my main goal. You know, my business, my livelihood, my paycheck, everything depends on selling bikes. And let's face it, spending time to do security right will take time and money. And uh, that I think that's part of the problem. It's seen as a cost. Maybe they're okay with spending the cost for the pro product, but there is a human cost to setting it up and doing the right things. And sometimes the business, you know, that if it, you don't have the dedicated security professional, it's, it's half time from your IT guy. You'd rather him make sure your site's working so you can make sales than, than do that. So, so I get that, that subtle thing that pushes all businesses. It's why security gets deprioritized. But 
but that's also the risk. You know, you think of security as a cost because it's not directly contributing to your revenue. But when you get attacked, you realize that ultimately security has a big uh, impact on your bottom line, on keeping some of the profits you might have earned. Yeah. And I think if there's one good thing to come out of all these big attacks that have seemed to be like making their way through the news is that it is finally making security become a mainstream topic. Like you didn't hear about all these. You heard about like the really, really big ones decades ago. But it didn't it wasn't at this like cadence that we have now of every other week. There's another big hack. Like we've got the president going and having conversations about cybersecurity now. We've got every uh, family talking about cybersecurity and hacking and ransomware and stuff. And so I th feel like that's a good thing overall of at least having people aware of cybersecurity and their need for yeah. protecting themselves and their companies now too. Obviously that's still yeah. like step one of 20 for securing an organization, but it's at least a step in the right direction. Yeah. And I, and I think that the negative way of saying this, but it will produce the right results. Most businesses are a business. They, they track and run the business based on numbers, you know, profit, revenue, and things like that. And the reason in the past, let, let, let's face it, if security is a cost and the impact you've seen from lack of security has been small so far, you know, you've had malware before, maybe you had to spend the... Uh, you know, take it to Best Buy and have thousand, the squad fix thousand it. Dollar. Yeah, you, you spent tens of thousands of dollars cleaning it up, but didn't have very much legal ramification. To you, your lack of, you know, not spending uh, $200,000 to get a security expert might have been worth it because your costs for lack of security were only in the $50,000 range. Uh, I don't love that. I, you know, I'm, I'm this weird security guy where I do want to protect the business and I worry about losing the customer data and the other people affected in the hidden costs. But nonetheless, from the business, uh, it costs less to lose 50K than it does to spend 200K. But to what you said, Mark, is companies aren't losing 50K anymore. They're losing $5 million, $10 million, $15 million in one go. That's just for the extortion. That's not even the reputation hit, all the security controls, the, the compliance and regulation fines. So while I hate that businesses have to get hit with that stuff, I think what's going to change in businesses is they're now going to see the repercussions and the impacts of suffering these attacks are bigger than the costs of actually doing, putting a little more effort and getting humans to help your technology work properly and realizing that technology, you need it, but it's not the only thing that will secure you. You know, you, you need the the people, whether it's MS, MSSP service, your own security folks too. Are you concerned so, yeah. about the, the Band-Aid solution of just buying an insurance policy for this? I, I personally, uh, and not from a business perspective, obviously we care as a vendor, but I, yeah, yes is my answer because that's how ransomware went at first and we've seen how that happened. Uh, or, uh, I, I think now insurance companies are thinking, oh yeah, we'll just take over the security business by offsetting, you know, uh, our, our insurance will be less than the impact of the attack. But now the insurance companies are losing $5.5 because they've had to pay ransomware for 200 customers and they realize the long-term actuaries don't support their costs. You're going to see cyber insurance costs skyrocket and extortion insurance really skyrocket. We've already seen some cyber insurance companies decide not to do ransomware payments anymore. So uh, I, I think... In, 
insurance might offset the business's cost, but it doesn't offset the problem. If bad guys keep making money from this, they're going to keep increasing their attacks. And there's a point where even insurance is going to go up to a point too. So I would rather, you know, it, it to me, it probably seems cheaper to solve this Insurance should just be a backup. <laughs> it's in the long run, it's going to be cheaper for everyone to solve this by doing the right thing and making cybercrime unprofitable. I like that answer because it keeps me employed. <laughs> I know. I, by the way, I still think you should take as a business. If you're a business owner, cyber secure. I mean, cyber insurance should definitely be something you consider because you do need backups. Just not your but only I don't consideration. Think it, it, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't replace good security and you should realize as cyber attacks do, you know, we've all seen in, insurance is no mystery. If they're losing money, they're going to ask for more money. So if cyber attacks are succeeding more and more because people aren't implementing security controls, the insurance is going to continue to go up and up. Yep. That makes sense. And by the way, the the insurance doesn't get back your time. It might give you some financial you know, payback so you don't go out of business, but it's still going to disrupt your business to have a big cyber attack, even if insurance pays for a lot. And of that it. reputation hit will stick around too. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, or if you want to offer chemistry lessons, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at Secadept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443. Uh, thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.